so good to see <coughs> so many children this morning uh, going out, and uh, so good to come to this text. I've really enjoyed uh, the book of Acts and going through the book of Acts and really uh, solidified, uh, even, even in my heart, many convictions about the church and the necessity and importance of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we see so many beginnings here in the book of Acts, and we see the beginning of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing passage to look at uh, that, that we're going through. In fact, we've spent a couple Sundays in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to, of course, spend another one uh, today. But we realize the context. You know, here, early in the morning, James, uh, I'm sorry, Peter and John come to the gate beautiful, and they're confronted by a man who happened to be lame from birth. And they miraculously, through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, healed this man. I mean, it was absolutely stunning. And remember, he would have been always there. People would have passed by and, and, and uh, seen him. But all of a sudden, he's leaping and dancing. You know, he's rejoicing in the goodness of God. And this draws an attention. And it draws an attention both towards Peter and John. But Peter begins to preach. And what he does is take the focus off themselves and put it on the Lord Jesus. And what, what he does is preach the gospel. You know, and at the end of that, when we come to the beginning of chapter number four, we see what happened. We see the response to this preaching. And that is that 5,000 individuals came to a saving knowledge of Christ. In other words, they became disciples. They followed the Lord. But we also seen in Acts chapter four something that didn't exist before. And that is a rise of persecution against those who are of the way, those who are of Jesus Christ, those who happen to be the disciples of Jesus and we see that the disciples are put overnight in jail, you know, to think long and hard about their preaching. And they're brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Judaism, in the morning. And we read in verse number 7, it says, when they had set them in their midst, they inquired. And you can imagine the arrogance. You can imagine even the authority that they spoke with. By what power or by what name do you do this? And you can imagine because they're trying to intimidate them. And let me just say this, this would have been an intimidating um, uh, arena that they happened to be in. They, they would have been in this hall, they would have been set, uh, set in the midst, and then there was a semicircle. And these men would have been uh, sitting on raised seats, looking down on them. And you can imagine them looking down with judgment upon them. And you have to remember, these are the same men that condemned the Lord Jesus. They had that mock trial in the same hall, they, they, they sat in the same seats, and they pronounced him guilty. Guilty of blasphemy. And then they got up, and here are these cultured men, here are these religious men, and they began to beat on Jesus Christ. They began to smack him, punch him, you know, pluck out his beard and spit upon him as being absolutely unworthy. These were the same men who delivered uh, Jesus over to, be, over to Pilate to be crucified. These are the same men who even paid the 30 pieces of silver to Judas. And you can imagine again the whole scene that happens to be again right here. You know, because this, this whole uh, group of people, this whole audience that happens to be right here, is different from chapter number 3. In chapter number 3, Peter has a willing audience. They want to know how this was accomplished, how this man that we pass by day after day after day can now walk, especially when he was born lame. You know, they wanted to know the truth that happened to be This group doesn't care. They hate Jesus Christ. They hate, again, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and you can see that even though they happen to be cultured men, uh, that they cared more about their position, they cared more about their prestigious or easy life that happens to be again right there. 
And so you can imagine, here's two common men, you know, they're fishermen, they have no power, they have no standing, that happens to be again in society, and they're put in the midst of this. You know, and the, and the question is, what will they do? Because they know what happened to Jesus. You know, what will they say in defense of themselves? You know, and it's amazing because as you look at the world, we, we don't see it. Uh, we do see it today, but not on the scale of other places that happen to be again in the world. I can uh, remember as I was going through this passage several months ago, studying for it, that I read on the news that there was a bombing in a church in Congo, you know, in an evangelical church. And you know the great tri- um, uh, crime that they had done, the reason why the church was bombed? is because they preached Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the grave, as the only way of salvation. That was their great crime. You know, and there's a hatred that happens to be, again, against Jesus Christ, against this great God that happens to be, again, of here. And anyone who has a worldview that puts Christ at the center many times is, uh, comes under that opposition. You know, we have this word that happens to be in our um, society today, and it's basically this, toleration. You, 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 you know, have you heard it? You know, and, and people don't understand what toleration is. Toleration in a, in, in a free society is basically this. I am going to fight for your right to express your opinion, what you believe. And you have a right to express your opinion, what you believe. But here it is. I have a right in a free society to express my belief and tell you that you're wrong. You know, and that's how we challenge one another. That's how we come to the epitome what truth is. But let me tell you what's, what is today. In the name of toleration, there is an absolute intolerance to anyone who has any different views than you. You know, you will be put down. You will be chastised. You will be looked upon as bigoted. You know, every kind of noun that happens to be again out there that's negative will be placed against you. You know, and, and you, you can see this. Uh, I get emails, and I, I don't know how they've ever got my email address, but I, I get email uh, um, uh, from various different organizations, evangelical organizations, and I put that in quotation. There's this huge, historic Baptist organization that exists in Ontario, and they had a conference last year because they acquiesced to the culture that happens to be around us. We do not want this opposition. We do not want this opposition. And so they acquiesced to the culture that happens to be around them. And the conference was all about, this is the annual conference, was all about how to make the LGBTQ community feel more at home in our church, you know, more accepted as our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they stopped calling, here it is, sin, sin. You know, and this is nothing against the LGBTQ community. They're sinners just like us. You know, and they need the grace of God. You know, and as... As uh, opposition always raises up, there's always a tendency to take what is primary, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and make it secondary. And this is why I love the book of Acts, because it shows us what we ought to do when there is opposition. Because not only do we read about these strong men, but in verse number 8, we have the response. And then it says, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... And he addresses them. You know, he recognizes them as the rulers, of the elders, again, of the people. He recognizes them. You know, he pays them respect. But then we read that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And please don't misunderstand the text. The text doesn't mean that he has some sort of supernatural, you know, unction that just came upon him. And it's not Peter speaking, it's the Holy Spirit. What it means by that is he's controlled. 
You know, just like somebody might be controlled by rage. You know, Peter could have been controlled by rage. He could have been controlled by anger. He could have been controlled by intimidation, right? Here we are. By what authority? By what name do you do this? You know, he could have been controlled by fear. You know, so many things. But who is he controlled of? And this is it. Whatever controls us in the inside finds a way of manifesting itself on the outside. And what he's controlled by or who he's controlled of by is the Spirit of God. And none other than the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ that causes him to preach, causes him, again, to manifest the gospel and keep first things first. You know, and I wonder if that's true of our own life. You know, we say that the gospel is our life. We say that Jesus Christ is our life. We say that he is is our all. But how often do we articulate? How often do we live the gospel? You know, as we come even on this Father Day, uh, Father's Day before friends and family, how much is Jesus Christ going to play a part? How central is he going to be around unsaved loved ones? You know, when was the last time we really articulated the gospel? If we're called Great Commission Christians, and God has given us a mission, and the primary mission of making and maturing disciples for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, how often are we involved in that? How often are we involved in training others? How often are we involved in even testifying of the glorious reality of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we all realize the drawback on it because many times we're consumed or we're controlled by intimidation or fear of what others might say or what others might do rather than being controlled by the Word of God, rather than being filled by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with God's presence in his life, realizing the centrality of the message. And I want us to look at that message that Peter preached. You know, and let me just say this, because we read these passages, and a lot of times we've read them and read them and read them and read them. This is high drama right here. I can imagine Peter shaken and boldly, in fact, we know that he's boldly saying these words. But look at, uh, I want us to look at the message, and then I want us to look at also the exclusivity again of that message, because in both of those, we see the importance of it. But look at uh, verse number nine and following of our text here. It says, Peter says, you know, rulers, uh, rulers of the people and elders, and then he says this, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. I mean, that's high drama. Those are words that can get you killed. You know, and it's incredible to look at because there used to be a course several years ago, and it was very popular for, for uh, pastors to take. And I don't know why it was so popular, but it was called How to Make Friends and Influence People. It was a Dale Carnegie course, and it just seemed like a lot of peace, uh, pastors uh, took it. And I'm not, I'm not sure why, because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Peter never took that course. You know, it's amazing, again, to look at his boldness. You know, it's amazing to look at his courage that happens to be again right here, right in the authority of the Sanhedrin. And remember, beyond a shadow of a doubt, because we know what happens. We know the end of the story. Peter, when he said these words, didn't know the end of the story. He didn't know if this was going to cost his life. He didn't know if he would be brutalized. He didn't know if he'd be taken out of that hall, that, that hall, uh, that taken down the Temple Mount, thrown out of the city and stoned. He didn't know if he was going to be brought before the Roman authorities and the Roman authorities would uh, all of a sudden hang him on that cruel cross, that painful cross, that painful, excruciating uh, way to die. He really didn't know. 
And yet he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that his Jesus is in full control of this. And he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that his Jesus is risen and is alive forevermore. And therefore, the most important thing that he can do is be a witness of Jesus Christ. The most important thing that these men need to hear, even in their hatred, is Jesus Christ crucified. And I wonder if we have that kind of disposition. You know, we can busy our lives, even busy our lives with a lot of good things that happen to begin in life. But how central is the gospel? You know, I love that old C.T. Studd uh, poem. He, uh, he wrote two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way. And it is a busy way. Bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. And here it is. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? Right? We can build an empire. We can build bigger houses. We can have more of the things that happen at the beginning of this life. We can have reputation. But let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, only what is done for Jesus Christ will last. And Jesus Christ has given us a mission. You know, and it's amazing to look at this because when you look at the passage of Scripture, by you can imagine these men seated up there. You can imagine the high priest get up and he announces, by what authority, by what name do you dare to preach in our temple? And the reason why he would say it in such a manner is because he is judging them. And here's the amazing thing as you look at these words, because when you look at the words, I mean, think of it, the common fisherman, he turns to the tables, you know, and really puts them on the judgment seat. Because look at what he says here in verse number nine. He says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man uh, has been healed? Let me just stop right there, because this is an irrefutable truth, because we're told it's not just... It's just just not Peter and John that happens to be right there, but it's also the healed man. And remember, these men were men who entered the temple every single day. And remember, ever since he was a child, he would be at the temple, and he would be doing the one activity that he could do, and that is a beg. And so they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man was crippled. There was no way, no medical way that his legs could have been repaired instantaneously like that. And he would have been able to walk. And it's incredible because they never examined that. They never examined the good deed done to this man. They never examined the good message given as far as calling people back to God. It's absolutely incredible. You know, and I see that again so often today. Somebody will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and their whole life will change they will, they will turn from old patterns that were absolutely destructive, absolutely sinful, absolutely even harmful to others. And they'll become a, almost like a new creature because they are a new creature inside and they'll follow Jesus Christ. They've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when people look at that, they'll mock that, they'll scorn that, and they'll never ask this question, by what power was this done? And you can see it over and over. And that is, again, exactly where these religious leaders are. You know, and it's amazing to look at this message because there's nothing warm and fuzzy about it. You know, he doesn't try to warm them up and say, you know, let's look at the parts that we uh, uh, agree on. You know, you guys, I know you're trying to do well. There's no warm and fuzzy here. But look look at what he says to them. Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel 
And then he says this, and I want you to get this, by, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is absolutely huge high drama. You can imagine the shaking. You can imagine the pronouncement. You can imagine the tone going up. You can imagine the tension that happens to me again right there. And he says, here's a question. By what authority, by what name did you do this? And he announces it. He announces it by the name of Jesus. Now, let me just say the name of Jesus means Jehovah saves. And we all know that. It was a very popular name. So he says, Jesus, and then he says this, Christ. And please never misunderstand it. That's not the last name. You know, we don't have, you know, Jesus is dead, Joseph Christ. It isn't that. You know, what it is is a title. And the title is Messiah. And so what he's announcing is that this Jesus is the hope of the Old Testament. You know that Old Testament that you study and study and study? This is the one that was predicted to come. This is the hope for the nation. This is the hope for the world. And in case you confuse him with any other Jesus, is that going to be out there? It's of Nazareth. And that was one of the reasons why the religious leaders hated Jesus. is because where, where did he grow up? He didn't grow up in Judea. He didn't grow up in Jerusalem. But he grew up in Galilee. In fact, even on the outskirts of Galilee in this town called Nazareth. And it had a uh, sizable Jewish population, but also a sizable Gentile population. And they intermingled. And they were known, again, as a sinful population. And so many people a lot of times wonder about the wisdom of God of having Jesus being brought up in that area. I mean, why? Why wasn't he brought up in a priest's house? Why wasn't he brought up in royalty or some, again, nobleman that happened to be again in Jerusalem? And you know why? Because here it is. Jesus identifies with sinners. We're Nazarenes. We're the unclean people that need the cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is, perfectly identifying with them. You know, and he announces how this, or what authority this man had been healed. And I love this because, like I say, he turns the tables, doesn't he? You know, by what authority? We're going to condemn you. You're going to die. We're going to butcher you. And they try, try, try to really intimidate them that they would back down, that they would say something, again, go against their convictions or whatever it happened to be. If you've ever been in that position, I mean, people can be daunting. You know, they can, you can feel almost their blood pressure up. You know, and you can imagine this because he changes the tables, doesn't he? He says, yeah, by this man right here, and you know him, whom you crucified. Right? It was them, the religious leaders that arrested Jesus Christ. You know, that had him brought before that mock uh, trial and handed over the Romans to be crucified. It's by you. And here, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Whom God, this is God's man, and how do we know it's God's man? How do we know it's God's Messiah? How do we know, again, the truth? God raised him from the dead. If he was a sinner, if he was somehow a fake, a phony, a forgery, then he remains in the grave. And you know what is really astonishing? The religious leaders and no one else through recorded um, church history, that early church history, ever contradicts that statement. They, they never say this. No, he's not risen from the grave. No, 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 he's buried, buried out there in the tomb. 
What, what are you talking about? There is never a contradiction, and you never have a contradiction of that fact in all of the Gospels, in all of the book of Acts. And get this, in any other historical writing that happened to begin of that time, they, they, they never say, you know, um, you know, here it is in the second century, and they're writing about the first century, and they say the uh, apostles conjured up this idea that Jesus was risen from the grave. That came several thousands of years later, and very popular again in our society today. But back then, there was nobody who, who did that. And why didn't they do that? Because Jesus appeared over and over and over and over. The witnesses are just too great. They're too numerous. You know, to ever deny that Jesus is risen from the grave. You know, and you can imagine it, because you can imagine Peter. You know, he's not timid right here. In fact, in verse number 13, we read this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And let me just say this something about boldness. When you know that Jesus is risen, when you have spent time with him, I mean, how can it not but create a, a boldness in our hearts? And we know by faith uh, he's risen from the grave and perceived that they were uneducated. This is really amazing. Uh, common men. You know, otherwise they should have been intimidated. They should have been fearful. This is the outcome. They were astonished. And I love this. And they recognize that they were with Jesus. And please don't misunderstand the text. They're not saying, oh, I recognize that red-haired guy. You know, he, he was back here. He was back here. He followed Jesus. Oh, I recognize John. You, you know, he has a son, James. Their father's the, the Zebedee. You, you know, I recognize that they follow Jesus way back here. That's not what it's talking about. When it says this, they recognize that they had been with the resurrected Christ. This is why they have boldness. If Jesus is alive from the dead, then there's nothing that you can do of eternal significance to me. And they had that conviction. And it was so controlled by that conviction that what came out of them is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Because Peter's not done. You, you would think this would be a good place to start. To, to a stop. I mean, he's just made accusation against him, but he grounds it in the Old Testament. In other words, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not preaching anything novel. I'm not preaching anything new. This is what was talked about in the Old Testament. And so look at verse number 11. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And this is a quote that's taken from Psalm chapter 118, verse number 22. Now, let me just ask a question, because people are just fascinated by this. What if God gave you a prophecy of your life? You know, a specific prophecy of your life. Would you be excited about it? I mean, people do that all the time, right? Every single, I don't know what days it come up, because I've never read them. But they get the newspaper, and what do they do? They open up, what page, what page? Begins with an H. I know you guys are all good Christians, right? Horoscope, right? Right? And they read about that. It's always something good, isn't it? You know, good fortune. You know, uh, something's going to happen to me today. But here's an amazing thing. There's a specific prophecy in the Word of God about the religious leaders, but it ain't good. You know, in fact, it's the exact opposite. In fact, Jesus even quoted uh, to them in Mark chapter 12, in beginning of verse number 10, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is, this is what it is, marvelous 
in our eyes, right? Who is marvelous? Jesus is. Who is he? He's the cornerstone. Now, think of what a cornerstone is. A cornerstone is a stone that is chosen, and a whole edifice is built around it. Now, here's a theological question, because I want you to follow it through. Right? It's rejected, right? We realize that's talking about his crucifixion. We, we realize they've rejected him as Messiah, the Lord. We realize God the Father has raised him from the, the, the dead. He is the cornerstone. Christianity cannot exist without Jesus Christ. Here's the question. What is he the cornerstone of? What is he building? And when we, let me give you the answer. And then I'll explain a little further. What he's building is the temple. Now think about it. What is the temple? What is a temple? Any temple that happened to begin out there. A temple is a religious shrine, isn't it? And it's a religious shrine in all various different religions where they would say that the deity dwells. Right? And this is what Jesus Christ is. He's the cornerstone of this temple in which he's going to be lauded, worshipped, and known, and occupied. And you know what we call that? Because with a C. Anybody know? It is the church. Right? We have this again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following. It says, so, so then... You are no longer, right? We've come to Christ. We used to be outside of the faith. We used to be outside of the covenants. We used to be outside of the truth. We used to be uh, outside of God. He says, so then, you know, because of faith in Jesus Christ, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what we are through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, built on what? The foundation of... Who taught us the foundation? Who taught us about Jesus Christ? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then it says this, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. And what is he the cornerstone of? Well, listen to what it says. In whom the whole structure being joined together, otherwise it cannot exist without Jesus Christ, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what God is building. That's what Jesus Christ is building. Right? It's absolutely marvelous. It's absolutely wondrous. Now think of it, because here we have what is known every believer is a stone in this. Right? God is building this invisible uh, structure that we call this mystical structure that's called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many Christians today... And remember, this was not in previous generations. Say something like this, I belong to the mystical church, but I don't want to belong to the visible church. And yet when you go through the book of Acts, here's the amazing thing. It knows of no Christian who does not, who exists outside of the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to be identified with believers no matter what suffering it brings in their life. They want to be identified, again, with the Lord Jesus Christ and him glorious. And think of it, right? We've only got one life. Only what's done for Christ will last. And it's in the gospel. It's in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're strengthened through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have this corporate testimony and we stand together. It's through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that the great mission, the commission that God has given us to make and mature disciples 
for the glory of God goes forward. Now, here's the question. Why would you not want to be involved in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? If this is the temple, if this is the edifice that's going to glorify him forever and ever and ever and ever, this is what he's doing. And yes, we do suffer. Yes, it does come under opposition many times. Yes, people will try many times, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to dampen the edges But it's through Christ, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, through this foundation of Jesus Christ, that he's building this edifice, that he's going to be glorified forever and ever. Now that's point one. Point number two, even though that point was hard to take, point number two is, I think, even harder, especially in our world that happens to be again around us, and especially for us many times living in that world. And let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, if we're filled with the Spirit of God, if we've saturated ourselves with the Scripture, if we're growing and loving God, this message isn't hard. It isn't difficult. It isn't arduous to live out. But it's really joyous to live out, regardless of the circumstances that happen to begin in our life. And that is, and I want you to hear it, there's an exclusivity to the gospel message. There's an exclusivity to the way to approach God, to come into his presence, right? And here, I'll even go further in case it's misunderstood. There is only one way to come into the presence of God for us being sinners under the wrath of God. There's only one way. You know, and you see that in verse number 12, because look at what to verse number 12, very familiar verse. It says, and there is salvation in what? In no one else. You can imagine Peter saying this. Here's these men who are so in love with their good works. And Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And let me, let me say, I mean, so often we look at Peter thundering forth that we forget what's taking place here. We forget because so often we look at our sin, we look at the cost of our sin, we look at our rejection of God, we look at our rejection of Jesus Christ, and so often people say, well, there's no way that the grace can be that great in my life. And here, Peter's preaching the gospel to the very people who conspire to put Jesus on the cross. I mean, how amazing is the grace of God? You know, and here's the, here, and, and, and when you look at this verse, This verse, again, talks about the exclusivity of the gospel, but it also tells us the parameters of Christianity. In other words, here here are the borders. If you go outside of these borders here, if you go outside of these borders that happen to begin over there, then you're no longer in Christianity. You know, anyone who, who exits the parameters that are taught in verse number 12, even if the church has no right to be called a Christian church, Anyone who exits, who happened to be call themselves a believer in Christ, a Christian who exits outside of verse number 12, has no right to take the name Christian. And the reason they're torturing the kids over there again, you never know what's going on there. We've got all sorts of instruments out there. So, Uh, But it's amazing to look at because there happens to be so many people today that say that they're radical Christians. And what they mean by this is we've gone against the trend. 2,000 years of church history, and we've departed from it. Look at how radical we are. Look at who we accept. 
you know, we accept those of other religions. We say, again, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, you know, they're, they're not all wrong. You know, they're, they're a legitimate way to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And many times even chastises Christians for going to other Christ, uh, countries and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How dare you say that somebody else is wrong? And it's amazing because I understand it in a way because there is a rising hostility. It's always been there. But there's a rising hostility that happens to be against Christianity. So this is what we do. How can I, you know, make the message more appealing? And if you look at church growth numbers that happen to be again out there, they're staggering. And if you just read them, they're very worrying. You know, 4,000 churches will close their doors this year. Right? There's people that are going to walk out outside the church and never come back to the church again. And people say this, we got to do something. Until you look at the numbers a little more closely. You know the churches, most of the churches that are closing? They're liberal churches. And why? They don't have a message. Well, you can believe anything you want. You can believe anything you want. You can believe... Well, why, why do I need to come out? You know, it's, it's basically that. They're dead. Why? Because they're dead. There's no life that happens to be in them. And think of it, because the churches that are stable, the churches that are growing, you know, the churches that have a vibrancy about it and a passion for the Lord Jesus, they're, they're always strong on two things. One is sin. Sin is a great deal. But they're even more passionate about this, that Christ is even a greater deal. Look at what he's done. How can I not come Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, and sing about his greatness and celebrate all that Jesus Christ is for me? And when you look at the churches that are stable, that are growing, that are passionate, you know, they're churches that have, here it is, the centrality of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the centrality of the evangel, Jesus Christ, the good news. You know, and so look at what Peter says again right here. And there's salvation in no one else. And there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Talk about grinding teeth, you know, as far as all of these seats, the 70 seats that happen to begin right there. But it's incredibly clear verse about the exclusivity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I could preach a month on Sundays on this verse, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to bring out two things, and I hope it will be beneficial for you. And one is, I want to see who saves. I want to see not what saves, but who saves. And the one who saves is Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's his life. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he didn't say, you know, I have this neat revelation from the Father, and this is how you can have eternal life if you do this, 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 and this. And what I'm providing is this roadmap. When you look at all the apostolic writings, the apostolic writings are not like that. You know, I'm going to provide you a roadmap, and if you do this, 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 and this, and this, and if you go here, and if you perform that function, and if you do that, and if you live this certain way, then you will have salvation. It doesn't say that. It says that salvation is found in a person, and it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and think about it, because here's the theological question. And here, 90% of of those who call themselves born-again Christians get this wrong. And it's basically this. What, What does Jesus Christ save us from? 
Think about that. What does Jesus Christ save us from? I can remember listening to a radio broadcast one time, and a guy was asked a question, and he said, how did you come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and what were you saved from? And this was the answer. I can't explain it. I got on one end of the phone, and Jesus got on the other end of the phone, and we hooked up, and we've been together ever since. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I don't know what that means. I do not know what that means. You know, and what do we say from? Now, now think about it, because the word salvation is actually used, right? It's a Greek word, the Greek verb is sozo. And, and it's actually used in uh, uh, verses 9 and 10. And I want, want you to see if you can spot it, because it really helps us out. Listen to what it says. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now, here's the question. In fact, if you go back to verse number 9 for me. Okay, it's right there. Do you see the word salvation? Anyone want to take a guess? Let me give you a hint. It begins with H, and it's the last word in that verse. It's healed. You know, by what, what this man was healed. Now, how is it used there? This man is in a desperate situation that he cannot save himself from. In fact, nobody can save him from. And what happens? Through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Here it is. He saves him from this despicable situation. And so when we use the word salvation, we have to ask ourselves, what am I being? Here it is, extricated. What am I being saved? What am I being rescued from? And for us as believers, it shouldn't be a difficult question because here it is, we're saved from, and it's not even from our sins, but the consequence of our sins. We're saved from the just, from the righteous, here it is, wrath and judgment of God that I deserve for all of eternity. And only one who could come in human flesh and be of such great grandeur, such great value, who took the place and took the punishment that I deserve. That's the only way of salvation. It's the only way that I can be saved. And it's an amazing gospel because it's the gospel of God. God saves me from God to bring me to God. I mean, isn't that good? Who could have thought of a gospel like that? Good news again like that. And the one who saves us, remember, it's not a what, it's not a path, it's a person. The one who saves us is God. It's not Mary. You know, here it is, here's Jesus, but here's Mary. And if we somehow placate and come to Mary, she'll be able to come to Jesus and we'll be able to have, no, 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 no. It's not through any other name, right? No name. And in case you didn't get it, no other name. Right? It's a person. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. To add anything to it, to delete anything from from it, is to really destroy the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, That's the first thing. The second one really bubbles out of this. And that is the gospel is absolutely exclusive. And may I say beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the thing that I think people hate most of all. Right? That's fine. I'm so happy you found Jesus. 
I'm so happy that you're following him and it works for your life, but he doesn't work for my life. I'm on a different path. I'm on a different way. I'm on a different road. You know, and that's where I'm going. Right? And people will say all the time when you say, you know, there's only one way, there's only one way, there's only one way, they'll say something like that. You can't say that. You know, what about Gandhi? What about Aristotle? What about Plato? What about Socrates? What about Muhammad? What about Buddha? You cannot say that. And my response to that is, I don't say that. God says that. It's his word. And let me tell you, your opinion matters nothing. When you tell me, well, this is what I think, well, that's what you think. You're not telling me what God thinks or what, God, what, what, what way God has made known. And let me say, um, this is what Jesus said. Jesus taught an exclusivity of the gospel. It's not just Peter. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse number 6, he said this. Jesus said to him, I am not a way, the way. I am not a truth. I am the truth. I am not a life, but I am the life. And listen to what he says after all the the, the, thes. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, let me ask you a real difficult question. Who comes to the Father who doesn't come through Jesus? And the answer is what? No one. Right? And even Peter, through, uh, even Paul, through, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse number 8, to warn us about different paths. He says, even, but even if we are an angel from heaven, imagine that, even if an apostle or an angel from heaven came and preached to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you. Let him be accursed. As we've said before, now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him, and the word is so strong a curse, let him be damned. Right? Now again, here's the question. Why do people object? Why do people stand opposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do people get infuriated with the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? And we could say that they don't understand the enormity of their sin, but I think a better Statement is they don't want to understand the enormity of their sin, right? right? We're basically good people. And what the gospel tells us, what scripture tells us, what God tells us is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of my sin deserve eternal death. And there's nothing I can do about it. But here's this gracious God. And my sin is a big deal, but Jesus is a greater deal. He has come and lived that perfect life. And the only one who never deserved to die, never deserved judgment, took that judgment upon him that I might get what he deserves. Now, here's here's the crux of the matter. Why would we ever turn from this message? Why would we ever change it? Why would we ever say that we need to build bigger barns at Emmanuel Baptist Church? You know why? This is the one way of salvation. And let me just close and read that verse one more time. And there is salvation 
and no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's God's word, not mine. Praise him for his goodness. Let's bow our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, as we look at the boldness of Peter, Lord, controlled by your word, controlled by your spirit, oh God, we're convicted of how often we're controlled, we're filled with fear, intimidation, worry, anxiety. And in that worry, in that anxiety, we downplay the significance of Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the grave. Many times we're silent. Many times we change the subject. God, I ask that you would convict us. Lord, help us to be so Christ-saturated that what comes out of our lives, how we live, how we function, how we speak, Lord, might be that gospel. May we be known as great commission uh, believers because we serve a great Savior. We thank you so much. Just be with us as we conclude now. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother.